A shocking overdose wave hits Belleville, Ontario. CTV Calgary publishes a poll with no mention of how it was little more than far-right propaganda. Why do trucks keep slamming into overpasses in British Columbia? And Pakistan heads to the polls today. Good morning. It's Thursday, February 8th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. This morning, we start in Belleville, Ontario, where at least 14 people overdosed in a matter of hours this past week. 14 is how many calls emergency responders responded to, and they were all in downtown Belleville. The police treated it as a public emergency, asking people to, quote, exercise caution and avoid unnecessary travel, unquote, to the downtown because the overdoses, quote, prompted the need for increased vigilance and awareness, unquote. The article by Dan Takema doesn't explain what that means, assuming that the reader would immediately be able to know why increased vigilance and caution would be required and not, say, a ton of health professionals helping folks who needed help. But it does press the police to explain their decision. Staff Sergeant Jeff Gein said it was because they needed, quote unquote, enough room for emergency services to, quote unquote, work and to, quote, prevent those experiencing an overdose from getting injured, unquote, because people who are ODing could, quote, very easily walk into roads, unquote. The community only has seven ambulances, and so others had to be called in from nearby communities to help. Nine people ended up being sent to hospital. Overdoses in the city have been steadily increasing, including spiking last November. This is a sole-sourced article from COPS. They tell everybody to carry naloxone, try small amounts of drugs before you try larger amounts of drugs, and to never use alone. It doesn't seek any comment from drug users in Belleville who could explain what they think happened based on their experiences. Was this a wave of a single set of drugs from one dealer or a couple of dealers? Did the drugs look a particular way? Is there any fear that anyone else might take similar drugs and do they have to let people know what to look out for? It's just the police and how the police use this as an excuse to shut down the downtown from average people circulating. And if you're not sure how big Belleville is, well, about 55,000 people live in that city. Next to Alberta, where CTV Calgary published a poll that said, quote, Albertans support parental consent and or notification for minors seeking abortions, unquote. The problem? Well, CTV didn't actually look to see who did the poll or much actually about the poll. It turns out that the poll was conducted by a group called Alberta Blue Strategies and their subgroup, National Public Research Canada. From Duncan Kitty at the Progress Report, quote, Alberta Blue Strategies is a conservative voter contact firm and call center run by Richard Durr, unquote. Durr is also the executive director of Pro-Life Alberta Political Association. I'll just make a note for people who speak French. The name Dick Durr is pretty hilarious, uh, given uh, what he's uh what he does. The polling firm isn't a member of the Canada Research Insights Council, the industry body for pollsters in Canada, and it took the Canada Anti-Hate Network to discover that the PDF with the poll's results were created by Alyssa Golob, ED of a group called Right Now. She designed it in Canva. Kinney reports, quote, the next day, CTV Calgary did a top to bottom rewrite of the story. This rewrite changed the focus of the story from just repeating the poll's findings to critically looking at the polling company in the poll. 
just look at the change from the first sentence of the first story to the updated version. Here we go. Quote, a new poll suggests a majority of Albertans support parental consent and or notification for minors seeking abortions. Unquote. That is changed to, quote, the company behind a new poll on parental rights in Alberta for minors seeking abortions is refusing to disclose information about itself, casting doubt on the veracity of the survey. Unquote. Yes, that is a completely different story. I should also just mention, hey, CTV, you don't need to use things like parental rights when you are writing your own pieces. The company behind a new poll on parental rights in Alberta for minors seeking out abortions. What the hell does that even mean? There are no parental rights when we're talking about the right of a youth to seek an abortion. That is their right. And then the question is, what is the level of knowledge that a parent may or may not be entitled to in that situation? But it's not parental rights. And there's no there's no freaking such thing as parental rights. So, I mean, you, you screwed up CTV on this on a, in a whole bunch of different ways, and then you managed to still screw it up in your, I mean, mea culpa, I guess. So CTV Calgary, that gets five solid yikes. Next to Vancouver. The Vancouver Sun has a massive investigation into this age's greatest riddle. Why do trucks keep hitting overpasses in British Columbia? Well, since 2021, no fewer than 34 trucks have run into an overpass. The most slammed into overpass is the 264 Street overpass on Highway 1. Six trucks have hit it since 2022. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, it's, it's wild that a, a, a journalist is investigating this and it's not like, you know, the subject of uh, legislation. <laughs> I mean, come on. Transport. The transport ministry knows all of this stuff, as we're going to find out because of the research that Gordon Hoekstra managed to get. So the piece is by Gordon Hoekstra, and he tries to figure out the answer, and he does a pretty good job. He starts with this anecdote. A truck, height officially at 4.3 meters, slams into an overpass. That is 4.5 meters. How could this possibly happen? Well, it turns out that the truck's load was higher. It was 5.02 meters, enough for Slamageddon into the bridge. Hoekstra says that this is a typical story of the 34 crashes. And here is the list of whys that he has been able to uncover. Quote, there are a multitude of reasons offered by the industry. They include inexperienced drivers, a lack of training for overheight loads, lack of communication between dispatchers and drivers, firms that push the drivers into unsafe conditions, low pay and shippers who seek out cut rate carriers, unquote, all hallmarks of an industry that is placing profits before safety, clearly. Of course, because profit is always more important than systemic issues that are caused to make profit, driver error is what the province lists as the official cause of each crash. And half the time, the truck company is also included as having made an error in the official findings. Truckers in the piece all point to cost-cutting measures as the problem. Inexperienced drivers, foreign drivers who haven't driven in Canada's climate and on our roads before, a lack of training, a lack of route planning, a lack of height clearance awareness, and tech that is supposed to indicate the height of upcoming overpasses, but does not. Hmm. Hoekstra also dug into many documents. One of the documents was a job offer for the Cory Transport Company, a company that has had a truck hit an overpass in the past. In their posting, it said explicitly that you don't need to be able to speak English, nor do you need to have any experience trucking. Companies that have had trucks slam into overpasses, including Gulzer Transport, TSD Holdings, and United Coastal Logistics, have all been fined for underpaying workers as well. Chohan Freight Forwarders is the only company on the list 
that has had multiple overpass strikes. They've had six since 2021 and have also been nailed for a host of other safety and protocol failures, which begs the question, why does Chohan Freight Forwarders still operate? Why hasn't the government stepped in? How is this legal? I encourage you to read this feature. It goes deeper, is longer, and brings government into the conversation. It does answer the riddle convincingly. Unfortunately, Canada is addicted to truck accidents and short of people mobilizing to force governments to actually do something, it is likely that things will continue to get worse. And finally, to Pakistan, where voters head to the polls today. 128 million people are eligible to vote at more than 90,000 polling booths. The 266 seats in the National Assembly are up for grabs, as well as leadership in the four provincial legislatures. The winning party will need 134 seats to have an outright majority. Al Jazeera reports that this election is already on shaky ground, especially since the country's military has made it impossible for the popular candidate Imran Khan and his Pakistan Tehreek-e-Insaf party from having a fair shot. 30 people have already been killed by three bomb blasts, two in Balochistan and one in Karachi. Al Jazeera notes that more than 1,000 people have been killed in the past year due to violence. Inflation in Pakistan is a disaster. It's at 30%, and 40% of the population lives below the poverty lines. And so this election is a big deal for Pakistanis who hope that better days may be ahead. Now, the three party leaders that Al Jazeera highlights are Bilawal Bhutto Zardi. He's from the Pakistan People's Party, and he was foreign minister for a short time after Imran Khan was removed as prime minister in 2022. His mother and grandfather both served as prime minister, and his father was the president from 2018 to 2013. He is running on fighting climate change and for gender equity in the economy. Next, there is Nawaz and Shabazz Sharif, the duo behind the Pakistan Muslim League. Nawaz has been PM three times, and Shabazz was briefly PM when his party formed an alliance with the other parties to remove Imran Khan. Al Jazeera says that it's not clear which brother will be PM if the party wins, but Nawaz, quote, will likely hold the strings either way, unquote. Nawaz is also the most likely to win. Then there is Imran Khan. He is in jail for corruption. When he was removed as prime minister, he held massive protests against the country's military. The military in Pakistan is very, very powerful. And so that was politically probably a bad idea for him because, you know, now he's in jail. Nawaz Sharif also has been jailed for corruption, though, and he was sentenced to 10 years. He's no longer in jail. Khan's party is Pakistan's most popular party, as per election polling. But the crackdown on his party has been intense. They are not allowed to run under their own party banner, and instead they have to run as independents. And the party alleges that their candidates have been harassed, even abducted. No prime minister in Pakistan's 77-year history has served a full mandate. And just as I was going to bed, I saw this. Bloomberg announced that Pakistan suspended cell phone service across the country today during the vote. So good luck, Pakistan, and uh, we'll be watching closely to see what happens. Those are your headlines for Thursday, February 8th. I'm Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandynora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful day. I've had a cat just jump on the back of my head. I better deal with this. Talk to you tomorrow.